Hello, listeners, and welcome to the 49th episode of the Always Drive podcast, your weekly look at the latest news from the car, truck, and motorcycle industries, where we take everything but ourselves seriously. I'm your host, Devlin Riggs, and I'm going to start off on a bit of a tangent this week. Um, Driving to work on Monday, I saw a Maserati Ghibli, which is not totally strange. Ghiblis, they're not that expensive, and there's a dealership close to my house, but On closer inspection, I discovered that it was not a Maserati, but instead it was a Kia Cadenza. Uh, Make no mistake, a Kia Cadenza may be Kia's attempt at a more luxurious sedan, but it is no Maserati Ghibli. In fact, they're probably more reliable, even if not remotely as fast or interesting. So I thought, well... Maybe I've just forgotten what the Maserati Ghibli looks like, so I remembered sometime Monday afternoon to Google images of both the Ghibli and the Cadenza and compare them, and turns out, no, I have not forgotten what the Ghibli looks like, because they look almost exactly like a Kia Cadenza. Especially from a passing glance two lanes over, as I'm trying to get myself through my hour-long commute and air drumming to Boston. Uh, Then I figured, in this internet age, I probably was not the only person to have made this observation. And sure enough, there are threads on both the Maserati and Kia forums about the similarity between the models. But, of course, the tone is very wildly different. On the Maserati forum, nobody has any idea why someone would make such an assertion because the Cadenza definitely looks nothing like the Ghibli, and how dare the person who started the thread even insinuate that there's something in common between that pedestrian Korean appliance and my Italian masterpiece. Meanwhile, in the Kia forum, most users were saying something to the effect of, yeah, I could totally see that. Must be pretty embarrassing to have spent so much money on a luxury car and have it confused with a Korean economy sedan. Uh, it's not like Kia copied Maserati. Kia's car came out three years earlier. And, and this isn't to make fun of a Fiat Chrysler car. They handle that pretty well on their own. It's more of an observation that, in many ways, we seem to be experiencing... A sort of broad design convergence within the automotive segments where most crossovers sort of look the same of the same size and most sedans sort of look the same and most compact cars are starting to look the same. So you can still tell them apart, but with some cars it's more difficult than others. Some automakers have realized this and they've started swinging to the other pole, like the new Honda Civic, which has at least 18 feet of styling on a 10-foot car. It's way too busy, and the new Accord looks like it has a giant chrome plastic unibrow. The the same thing's happening at Lexus with the polarizing spindle grille. The the thing is, I don't think it's hard to make a good-looking car that looks distinctive. Take the Jaguar F-Type. It is, hands down, one of the most beautiful-looking cars that any car maker has produced in history, at at least in in my opinion. And it's simple. It's, It's straightforward. Elegant. It's both reverential to, to classic jazz, jags and it's futuristic. It, it's really a masterpiece of modern design, and, and it's easy to argue that, sure, for a car that starts at 80 grand, it, it should be pretty, but why can't we demand that from all cars? I mean, clearly, Honda put a lot of effort in on, on their new Civic. Uh, they had to get all those triangles in the back end to, to meet up in some sort of semi-cohesive package, but... Why not spend that time simplifying? I mean, it's part of the reason I like the GTI I bought so much. It's understated and and doesn't really draw attention. 
It doesn't shout about how fast it is, despite being faster than a Focus ST. So, even so, I'd still rather have a wild Civic that makes me just cringe a little bit every time I see see one, and I parked next to one today which had black stripes up and down the side of this bright blue Civic hatchback. Uh, but I'd, I'd rather cringe a little bit every time than see a Maserati that I confuse with a Kia. Or was it the other way around? J.D. Power's annual vehicle dependability study was released this week, and rather than running down the list of the best and worst, I'll sort of echo Autoblog's encouragement here to discourage uh, information from lists like this, because the way they gather their data really is pretty deeply flawed. Uh, first of all, they, they survey owners who have had their cars for three years, not, not more and not any less. And you know what most cars still have after three years? A warranty. And you know why they still have a warranty? Because most manufacturers design their cars well enough that things shouldn't be going wrong within the first three years. Some trust their cars more and will give them five-year warranties or even longer, but for for the most part, things should not be going wrong within the first three years. Second, the dependability survey treats all flaws equally. Cars and brands are rated on uh, a numerical problems per hundred vehicle scale, so fewer is obviously better, and the the best car maker in this year's study, Lexus, had, I think, 91 problems per hundred, so there were a few cars that uh, didn't have any problems. But if the parking sensors on your car sometimes don't see the wall in your parking garage, that's recorded as with the same severity as the transmission going out on your idiot neighbor's Dodge Charger. So those are not equal problems, but they're treated equally in this survey. Finally, J.D. Power Awards are pay-to-play, which means that in order to publicize the fact that they won an award, car companies must pay J.D. Power for the right to say they did. Paying for an award may not inherently lead to dishonestly dishonesty when awards are given, but it certainly isn't a, a super system that discourages playing favorites. Uh, So what can you do instead? Uh, Car companies generally have reputations for a reason. I mean, Lexus is at the top of the list, and they they belong there because they make fantastic, dependable cars. But then you know that, because not because of this dependability study, but because of the collective experiences of past and current owners whose stories have dispersed through the grapevine to, to sort of inform the public opinion. Acura and Subaru also make great cars, really dependable cars. But this year in this survey, they're languishing in the bottom half of the dependability study, which is misleading because you can almost certainly depend on them to get you from A to B, but you might not always be able to rely on something like your USB port reading your Android phone or something small. And and while it's not trivial, it's also not critical. But don't just trust your preconceived notions about automotive brands because they'll sometimes lead you astray too with companies like Kia and Hyundai who are in the top seven of J.D. Power's list this year and and have definitely made huge strides in reliability in the past 10 years. 
so read reviews from real owners on, on cars.com or Edmunds or uh, long-term reviews from Motor Trend or Car and Driver or any other number of reputable automotive publications. Read about common problems with cars on, on forums and on social medias and on car repair sites. Sure, with these sort of sources, you'll be getting anecdotes, but you'll be sourcing them from a larger crowd than either Consumer Reports or J.D. Power do. But remember that 80% people are 80% more likely to complain about a product on the internet than they are to praise one. So don't let an individual anecdote color your opinion of a car if you truly want it. But if you start seeing many stories of similar problems, then that's probably cause for concern, and you're... <laughs> You're probably researching a Chrysler, which, yes, was at the bottom of the J.D. Power survey, so you should probably be researching something else. Here are some headlines. Nowadays, Chevy and Buick are at the very top of my list when it comes to the absolute worst car commercials on television, between the just genuinely terrible, staged, fake-sounding, real-people ads and the awful techno-Buick surprise ads. It's hard to think there was ever anything worse out there, and yet Toyota tried their best to rob us up with, of our sanity with their Saved by Zero campaign in 2008 that featured music from The Fix to promote their 0% financing program in the fall. Here's a reminder. That's 0% financing on 11 different models featuring Toyota's legendary quality. No other car brand can make this offer. So hurry in now and see how much zero can save you on a new Toyota. Save by zero. Save by zero. Really bad, right? <laughs> of course, fall 2008 was right as the housing bubble was bursting, so low rates became common, and they're still around today, but they might not be around that much longer. With interest rates rising three times last year and slated to rise again this year, offering 0% uh, interest to buyers is getting more and more untenable because it comes at the cost of profit to the dealership. But it's still around in many places trying to spur sales that have been sagging. So what's happening is a situation where dealerships and automakers are trying to decide whether to keep selling more cars or sell fewer cars at a higher profit. In any case, if you're in the market for a new car and have great credit, now might be a good time to buy. Uh, for people more interested in used cars, it's looking like manufacturers are hopping aboard the vintage car bandwagon to help their old vehicles stay on the road. Uh, usually when cars are discontinued, parts continue to be made for a few years, and then the molds for the pieces are all destroyed and effort goes into producing parts for newer cars. This makes it pretty tough if you have an old car you love and want to keep on the road if parts keep breaking. You have to rely on third-party manufacturers of various dubious quality, or you have to get something custom-made, which can be super expensive. Fortunately, the cost of custom-making parts keeps going down uh, thanks to new technology like 3D printing. Porsche this week announced that they would be using exactly that technology to start making replacement parts for the 959, 356, and other old vehicles. Um, they've started printing just eight parts that apparently go wrong a lot, but are open to expanding their range to include other pieces, and you know they're of good quality since they're coming from the mothership. 
Uh, Fiat Chrysler is also getting into the vintage restoration business, too, with their Reloaded by the Creators initiative. Uh, instead of manufacturing individual parts, though, they're taking in whole cars and rebuilding them from the ground up, then selling them to collectors. Aston Martin and Jaguar already have uh, similar progr programs, and while there may not be too many vintage Chryslers that warrant full restoration, there sure, certainly are plenty of old Alfa Romeos, Lancias, and Fiat Abarths that are deserving of some factory TLC. Who knows, uh, the Italians might have even learned a few things in the intervening 40 years since most of these cars were produced, but based on current reliability ratings, I wouldn't count on it. I say that because those Italians are in the same company as Chrysler, a company that pushed out an over-the-air update to its Uconnect infotainment system on Friday that sent many, many vehicles in the northeast of the country uh, into inescapable boot loop um, that for some has still yet to be resolved. Um, until it is, drivers can look forward to having no radio, no reverse backup camera, and limited control over vehicle interior functions. Aren't touchscreens and technology great? Over in Stuttgart, Porsche is making waves with the news that their Mission E vehicles will charge batteries in less than half the time that it takes Teslas to charge, more closely mimicking the refueling time of gasoline vehicles. Porsche achieves the faster recharging rate by doubling the output of chargers up to 800 volts, which can't just run through the same channels as 400 volt chargers. It requires a wholly different and more expen expensive infrastructure and different structure to the batteries as well, meaning this tech would be exclusive to Porsche. Uh, this opens up a whole other conversation about charging technology standards. Already, there are four different standard plug types uh, for or, or charging ports, one endorsed by the German automakers and Ford, one for Tesla, one from the Japanese automakers, and one for China, uh, which has by far the biggest lead in developing in EV infrastructure. What this likely means is that we're going to wind up having to carry around a trunk full of adapters or that recharging stations will need to provide different plugs to suit different vehicles unless politicians want to get involved and try and pick one, but that would require regulations, and who needs those, right? Porsche is also taking the shade throwing to another level, calling their system turbocharging uh, to one-up Tesla's supercharging, uh, which I can only assume is the first stage in a one-upsmanship battle that ends in all of us using ultra-extreme mega-charging power volt max watt stations. Depending on who you ask, uh, drowsy driving can be just as dangerous as drunk driving, or it could just be a minor thing that doesn't really have an appreciable impact on traffic safety. Uh, the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration is in the latter camp, with research indicating that only 2.5% of fatal crashes are the result of driving tired. But a new study from AAA indicates that up to 10.8% of crashes with moderate to severe damage could be caused by a lack of sleep. In their study, AAA put cameras in front of more than 3,500 drivers to track if crashes were the result of drowsy driving, which is how they wound up at almost 11%. The thing is, these drivers knew that they were being watched and should have been incentivized to be on their best behavior, and yet still many drove tired and crashed. 
Uh, plus, AAA threw out any instances where they couldn't see the faces of drivers more than 75% of the time, like if the driver was wearing sunglasses or if their hands were obscuring the camera, so the real numbers could be much higher than the data suggests. On the heels of that study, Uber has rolled out a feature that limits drivers to a maximum of 12-hour shifts behind the wheel. The update will not permit drivers to accept new fares for six hours after working for 12 hours straight. Meanwhile, the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration mandates that all truckers carrying passengers work no more than 10 straight hours and take at least eight hours off between shifts. Not to mention, it has stricter requirements for drivers to obtain licenses to transport passengers. I, I get that the current trend is to damn all regulations and let the free market reign supreme, but beyond a certain point, we have to accept that some regulations have been put in place for the safety of consumers, and that it shouldn't be overturned or ignored or, or loopholed simply because regulations are bad. Uh, Uber and Lyft and other ride-sharing companies cut some red tape and provide people with jobs, which is great and I wholeheartedly support the gig economy. But by consistently flaunting the rules applied to other sectors, they walk a risky path that could lead to even tighter regulations for everyone. And speaking of Uber, news came out this week that they settled their lawsuit with Google's self-driving company Waymo for a cool $245 million this week, which is sort of an anticlimactic situation because we didn't get a real winner in the battle for self-driving supremacy, as a jury wasn't able to weigh in on the decision on the situation. Uh, what we get instead is a sort of muddled non-admission from Uber that they stole trade secrets and an acceptance from Waymo that what they stole wasn't worth more than $245 million, minus attorney's fees, which will be a lot. Uh, so as Uber's apology tour for their various misdeeds continues, they can at least cross off stealing from our competitors from the list. Every year, um, the battle is usually between the Honda Accord and Honda Civic for which is the most stolen car and for good reason. Whenever you see either cars, you probably think, oh, there's a reasonable sedan driven by somebody who bought based on a rich history of automotive reliability. Not, there's a thieving criminal just trying to lay low until he can get this baby to the chop shop. Uh, just like when you see a school bus, you think, there's a municipal vehicle on the way to or from picking up children to advance their education. But when you see a school bus hauling ass down a residential road at 3 a.m., maybe you start to think something else is going on. And that's precisely what happened to a police officer in Trotwood, Ohio. After following the bus for a while, the officer tried pulling it over for a traffic violation, which initiated what I think few people would call a very high-speed chase. Um, but a chase that was dangerous enough for police to call it off because it was getting too hairy. So they were right to do so because the bus crashed not long after on the front lawn of a nearby home. There, police arrested a couple of guys who had been sleeping in the big, yellow, very conspicuous, very poor getaway car. In other crime news, police in Ontario, Canada have purchased a Tesla Model X police cruiser, which has not gone over too well with taxpayers there. The Model X starts at more than $100,000 Canadian dollars and then had to be customized with light bars and the various other things that differentiate a cop car from normal cars, so it was very likely a very expensive publicity stunt. 
Criminals, on the other hand, are probably thrilled since they just need to find a getaway car with a range greater than 300 miles. And even if they get caught, there's no guarantee that those finicky Falcon doors on the Model X will even work to be able to put them in it. It was, however, probably a better buy than the Model 3 because the department would still be waiting until 2019 to get it, and even then the criminals might just be able to escape through some of the car's panel gaps. As a man who drives for about two hours in traffic every day, I don't need any more reason to believe that most people shouldn't be allowed to drive, and yet nearly every week there's a story that chips away at my already weathered opinion of my fellow drivers, and this week's example comes from Florida, and is truly as insanely stupid as a story from Florida should be. A man driving a 15-year-old BMW X5 SUV called 911 to report that he was speeding and that his gas pedal was stuck and he was unable to slow down from the 100 miles per hour he had somehow achieved. Uh, BMW, however, are calling bullshit on the whole thing because the X5 uses a floor-mounted pedal so that there's no way the pedal could have gotten stuck by a floor mat or any other obstruction. Furthermore, the X5 is drive-by-wire, meaning there's no physical connection between the gas pedal and throttle, and that the car's computer cuts the throttle whenever the brake pedal is pushed. Uh, and I'll connect the dots for you there, because this means that the man never pressed the brake pedal when trying to slow his car down, which sounds an awful lot like he was not at all trying to slow the car down. The 911 operator even tried offering him some tips like shifting into neutral or turning the car off or gently applying the parking brake to bring the vehicle to a stop, and all of these things were deemed just ridiculous by the idiot man who claimed that his car might spin out if he did any of them. So how'd they end up stopping him? Spike strips. Spike strips, which he swerved to avoid the first time they tried to use them. And if you're worried about spinning out your car, and spike strips and swerving seem like better options than just shutting off the engine or switching into neutral or applying the brake pedal, you should be banned from even riding in cars for the rest of your life. This man must be banished to walk. Welcome back to the caveman days, buddy, because you have earned it. Here are some new cars. Brand new, brand new, brand new. I don't like it unless it's brand new. You might see me in my well with my Honestly, I'm not sure why we have car shows anymore. I've I've talked a little about their obsolescence before, but it seems like automakers are are starting to embrace it. The the Geneva Motor Show is coming up next week, but we've pretty much already seen all the actual new cars that we think are going to be announced there. And it's not like they're being leaked either. The automakers themselves are blowing the lids off their own new cars, sending information to the press without making a big splash at a show like they used to. So what do we know about already? There's a brand new X4, which is great for fans of jacked up sedan SUV bastardizations that are worse at everything than either of the vehicles that they combine to create them. And if you think that the X6 is useless because it's not as spacious as an SUV and lacks cargo space, but the stilted ride height makes the car stiffer and handle worse, first of all, you're right. Second of all, the X4 is even worse because it's like an even smaller, more useless X6. We also got a refreshed Mercedes C-Class, which gets a slightly revised exterior and is infused with some self-driving technology from the E-Class. Unlike the x 4x6, this is a totally useful vehicle, 
and will be enough car for virtually everyone, but since it's a sedan, most people won't want anything to do with it. Mercedes also unveiled an updated version of their Maybach S-Class, which essentially takes a $150,000 top-of-the-range car with the latest in every conceivable technology, increases the fancy, and then charges more than twice as much for it because rich people are rich and they can afford it. There were several other sort of minor announcements, but we'll keep an eye on the show next week in case there's something that'll surprise us. And speaking of surprises, the uh, Chicago Auto Show was this week, and I I don't mean that in terms of, like, there were a bunch of great surprising new cars unveiled at Chicago, but more as a, you probably didn't hear about the Chicago Auto Show because nothing happened at it, so it's a surprise to you that it has actually occurred. Uh, really, we we got some lifted Toyotas and Nissans and some faster versions of a Hyundai, a, a Chevy SUV and a Fiat, a Volkswagen we've already seen before, a bunch of customized vehicles, and a Nissan giveaway that looked a lot like a breast implant. Swear to God, it, it's apparently a hand warmer, but look it up on Google Images and tell me that's not a boob. Um, Faraday Future, their, their FF91 still isn't a real vehicle, but that doesn't mean nothing's been happening at Faraday Future headquarters in California, I think. Uh, anyway, they've been very busy, not on building a real car, but on sketching another potentially real car. Uh, they released this week a sketch for a smaller SUV that could slot in below the FF91, which, of course, presumes that the FF91 ever actually gets made. To me, Faraday Future, it's a lot like when you see a dog using a pillow or, like, sitting up in a chair, and you're like, oh, it thinks it's people. But in Faraday Future's case, it's like, oh, it thinks it's a real company. Uh, And I normally try to steer clear of speculation, especially in the new car section, because so much can change, and so much rumor tends out to be either wrong or underwhelming. But as a guy who grew up with a poster of a Toyota Supra on my wall... It's hard for me to temper my own excitement about the forthcoming Supra. Uh, Toyota themselves released a teaser image of the rear end of the car this week, which showed little except a big wing and uh, the double bubble roof. Uh, In that same day, scans of Japan's Best Car magazine were posted on a forum, which revealed some details about the car set to debut in Geneva, um, which is a race version of the road-going Supra. The specs seem to indicate it'll have 335 horsepower, be relatively lightweight, and somewhat incredibly sprint to 60 miles an hour in less than four seconds with just 335 horsepower. And I've seen the leaks posted on several sites, and and although the reaction has generally been split between domestic and foreign fanboys, both anti and pro, um, there have been several comments I've seen bemoaning the fact that it doesn't have more power and won't challenge the Nissan GTR for ultimate Japanese supercar supremacy. And I I think that's actually part of the reason why I'm so excited about it. The Mark IV Supra, which uh, ended production in 2002, uh, cost about the equivalent of $45,000 in today's money, which is less than half of what Nissan charges for the GTR. With that amount of power and performance, I I have to think that Toyota is still aiming at the same sort of price range for the new Supra, which means that, unlike the GTR, it's actually going to be a Japanese sports car people can sort of afford. 
the only thing that really gets me down about this car are the styling and the the fact and and what we've seen so far from the engine. Uh, I don't think it's a very attractive car from the front end, at least. And the drivetrain is derived from BMW, which one might generally think is a good thing until you remember that German engineering is the greatest lie ever perpetuated in automotive history. BMWs are notoriously unreliable, especially the more modern ones. And reliability was part of what made the original Supra so great. You could drive it every day, experience the thrill of ownership, and not have to worry about it breaking down. Unless Toyota has had a pretty thorough revision of BMW's motor, I'm afraid we're about to experience the most unreliable Toyota in history, and it's going to be one of the most hyped. Uh, in other pre-production car news, uh, Alfa Romeo stayed true to its Italian roots and left drivers of a nearly production-ready Stelvio Quadrifoglio stranded after the SUV broke down in the middle of Sunset Boulevard in L.A. Now, having lived in Los Angeles, I, I know that having a flashy car there is a high priority, and being able to park in high-visibility areas to attract attention is usually pretty desirable, so I'm not completely ruling out the fact that this was an elaborate awareness-building marketing campaign, but if it is, advertising the complete unreliability of your brand-new car seems like a pretty strange tactic. Uh, then again, it could totally appeal to the vapid, flaky demographic of many Angelinos. Uh, there's a reason I don't live there anymore. Um, in case you weren't alive in the 1970s, uh, you may never have heard of the Lancia Stratos. Uh, long story short, it's an awesome little two-door sports car with an engine in the middle that puts out a lot of power and was used extensively and successfully for rallying because of its short and wide wheelbase. Well, a small manufacturer is bringing the Stratos back with an updated look and updated technology. They're only going to make 25 of them, and they will cost $615,000 a piece. Oh, and you will also need to provide a Ferrari F430 to the company because that's the car on which they'll base your new Stratos. So all in, you're looking at close to $800,000 at a minimum for a 600-horsepower body-kitted Ferrari. Or you could spend half the amount on an original Lancia Stratos, which, uh, when they come on sale, you can get the actual real rally car. Or you could spend one-tenth the cost and buy the new Supra and get to 60 in about 0.3 seconds slower. That's it for new cars. Uh, and For this week's call to action, I want to encourage everyone to, to speak up and be heard. Unfortunately, we saw another mass shooting this week, again at a high school on our shores, and it appears as if it could have been prevented by more people taking action. And, and this isn't to dive into a debate over gun control, because first, this isn't the forum for that, and second, nothing will ever happen about gun control. But as the adage goes, if you see something, say something, and, and we have to take it upon ourselves to be the change makers in our community, and that starts with being vocal about our values and our interests. So this week, think about what matters to you and, and find a way that you can take action to make some sort of progress on it, even if it's just an incremental gain. We can't move forward unless we take that first step. So thank you for listening. Uh, thank you to Nicholas Falcon for our intro song. 
Uh, since last week we listened to the Formula E sounds, I thought it'd be a helpful reminder to sound to hear what a real race car sounds like. And since we don't have any good clips of the 2018 Formula One cars, here are some of the 2017 Formula One cars testing their 1.6 liter six-cylinder turbo hybrid engines. Uh, unfortunately, gone are the glory days of the naturally aspirated V12 whale, um, but still, these aren't too shabby. Here, friends, is your moment of zen. 